welcome to episode 14 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the adult mind. This is Russ here with Mike. Yeah, we're back, ready for more. And season's greetings, Mike. Well, season's greetings? What does that mean? Um, what season is it? It's. It looks like it's the rainy season. Oh, the rainy season. Oh, this is a Japan yeah. thing. You have to explain yeah, it's a this. Japan thing. So every year we get a seasonal... Uh, or a season of rain, uh, but it usually comes in June and lasts sometimes into July. But it looks like this year is going to be one of the earliest on record because it's already yeah. started raining and there's no sunshine in the forecast. What is the greetings part of that? And you're greeting the rain or something? I don't know. I'm kind of I kind of wish it was sunny out, really. Yes, Although it, it doesn't really matter because there's nothing to do at night here anyway. <laughs> That's right. Still under prohibition. We're, we're still in prohibition. Yeah. And Which is kind it's of not sad. even fun to go outdoors, so I guess we just have to stay inside yeah. and listen to more music. There's not much to do. I think I feel like people used to live like this maybe uh, 500 years ago before all the concert halls were built. Yeah, but I don't think the when hi-fi... had to go to church to hear music. Yeah, the hi-fi equipment wasn't really good back then, so... No. Yeah, so we're... Well, some, of, yeah, some of those churches were uh, really churches acoustically were really built, yeah. Yeah, you didn't need good speakers when you had acoustics like that. We still hear concerts in those places to this day, and they're among the best. It's really fantastic. They are. Mm. And, well, we've managed to find a bunch of interesting combination of music styles and things for the listeners this week. Yeah, we're, um, we're all over the map here in classical. We're, go, we're going through all the, uh, all the moods. That's right. But uh, before we jump in, I'd like to remind our listeners that in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist, all the music in one place on Deezer, where you can follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. If you can't see the full description or list on your app, uh, please check us out on our host, Podbean, where everything is nice and clear. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you give us a ranking or write a review, it will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which will help us grow our audience. So it would be much appreciated. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, and all who have been listening up to now, thank you very much. We're actually closing in on a thousand downloads. It's a real landmark. That's right. It won't be long. Yeah, we've got some interesting emails more. from uh, people uh, concerning yeah. music they'd like us to listen to and talk about, and so that Which makes is, us happy. So yeah, that makes us happy. Keep sending that. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. And we we might actually listen to it. We'll have to see <laughs> if we can put it. Oh, into I think the, we'll listen to it. I'm we, sure we you know, will. Yeah. Yeah. All right, All right. Where yeah, are we it's always start good out? to hear new music. Where okay, are we anyway, start out tonight. Today we're gonna we're, in classical. We're gonna do what we usually do. We start from. Uh, we're gonna go in kind of time order, as always. But this time we're starting in the uh, beginning of the Romantic era, the early 19th century. That's the 1800s, and we are starting with a new recording of the uh, by Alina Ibrahimova, Russian um, um, violinist who I think lives in England these days, and uh, she has recorded. Uh, the uh, 24 Caprices by Niccolò Paganini, these fearsome works for the violin. Now, uh, the reason she recorded these, by the way, are um, because of the lockdown. I think she was uh, in England, locked down her apartment. She just decided to learn these and then and record them. And in fact, there are a lot of um, 
recordings like that coming out. And we're going to be talking about three of them. Well, we're going to be talking about three solo violin recordings. This is the first of a of a three-part series. They're not all going to come in successive weeks, but uh, one of them is going to be um, another person, another violin virtuoso who recorded the... Um, um, who recorded the Isse um, solo violin sonatas um, under when he, when he was locked down? That's James Ennis, and he recorded them in his home studio. So that's even more uh, kind of you know do it DIY than this recording is. And then there's one more uh, a new recording of the um, Bach uh, sonatas and partitas for solo violin, which I really love, by Augustine Hadelik, and we'll be uh, talking about those pretty soon, I think. Uh, I like that violinist a lot. Actually, I like all three of them, but um, we'll check these out and see what they're like. Okay, well, so the first in the series is is this Paganini 24 Caprices. Now, I'm not very familiar, or wasn't, now I am. Uh, I wasn't very familiar with these works before I heard them. I only have two other recordings of them, and I don't really listen to them uh, much. One reason is because there are 24 of them, and they're all kind of similar. They're all built the same way. They're ternary, all of them, I think, or almost all of them, are ternary form. That's A-B-A. Uh, so you have like an A section, then there's a contrasting B section, and then the A section repeats. You know, sort of like an Oreo cookie. I used to tell my students, you have the, uh, the, outer, the outer hard part, and then the, the soft, white, creamy uh, middle part that everybody likes. That that it doesn't really that analogy doesn't really hold too well with uh, Paganini because the middle sections are usually very f- quickly played scales. Anyway, these are rather etudes, right? They they were written as from from what I gather reading about the history of these. There are studies to practice, you know, skills and various technical things and positions on the violin, but uh, right. apparently there wasn't. Another series of famous etudes at the time, but uh, Paganini yeah. thought they were r- rather too boring and unattractive, and so uh, he wrote these to also make something more musical uh, and rewarding uh, out of this type of uh, you know material uh, that you right. Uh, it's notable to say he didn't call them etudes, even though they are kind of studies in this new violin technique that really. Um, he came up with. Now, he didn't invent this out of um, the blue. I think it was a, he had um, these very old um, set of, you know, sonatas by Locatelli. I think for, I think it was him. I'm not really sure I who it was. I think that's I remember, yeah. Yeah, from, yeah. Italian. Italian violin virtuosos. They really came up with all of that. You know, think about Vivaldi and the Baroque era. And they were written in, that, I read three groups of so six, six, and then 12. Yeah. Um, so they're not and, really sequential or meant to be listened to in order for any you know particular yeah, program reason. In, in fact, they're not even even if you if you take like the first six, they're not even meant to be uh, listened to all together. They're all they, they you know, they're all kind of samey. I think they're kind of um they're meant to. I think he actually performed these actually, but usually as encores or I don't. He no one would do a whole um, concert of these. I would think, I would hope anyway. <laughs> It'd be a little too much of a good thing. They don't. They also don't hold together like as a group as like say the Chopin because they don't have any kind of key structure like the Chopin Preludes or the Bach uh, Well Tempered Clavier even though those are pedantic works they go in a certain key order so there's some mm-hmm. sort of um something leading them through yeah these are just 24 works that he wrote over a period of uh, 20 years or so a little less than that and he just published them all together as his Opus One okay well anyway I put on the old uh, Bowers and Wilkins PX7, uh, you know, wireless noise canceling headphones one day and started walking down the street and uh, listening to these. 
And uh, by the time I got up to about the third or fourth piece, I was kind of not terribly excited. I was listening to these and saying, hmm, what am I going to say about this? You know, because it was, it was just this violin technique. And it was pretty, uh, you had to listen carefully for the technique because um, a modern violinist can generally play these extremely well. Yet there are amazing things happening, which you notice when you actually watch them. When you listen to it, you got to listen carefully. There are a lot of like octaves in the melody and it's, it's really crazy. Double-stopped to, to, octaves. Yeah, to think things, double-stopped yeah. octaves and they're really subtle. It's it's really incredible when you see it and when you think about what's happening. But you, when you hear it and they're doing it so well, you don't really notice how spectacular it is. Now, the thing about these, I had to, I realized that I needed something to compare them to. Now, usually I have also have something in my head, but I, like I said, I'm not as familiar with these works as I am with some others. So I had to dig into the old uh, CD collection. Uh, and it, t- it took a lot of digging to find what I was looking for because I have so many of these CDs. But I have two other recordings of these Caprices. One is by um, 1972 recording by Itzhak Perlman, a very famous uh, recording because he was the violinist of the day. Yeah, I listened to that and, one too. Yeah, and the other one I had was uh, Julia Fischer. And yes. so I compared that one too. She's a German violinist. And that one came out in 2010 and it was really highly... Right regarded at the time by the way there is one by augustine hadelich but which i haven't heard yet right. i should probably that give those a, a listen to a lot of reviews on amazon i saw for that and i, I bet also, it does because he's a really great violinist he's, he's I also really listened something to uh the shlomo mm-hmm. mints on gramophone recording of this to compare it as well okay well i, th- I thought those were going to be a little too i barely got through these <laughs> well i didn't listen <laughs> I was, to every single one i, was, I just i listened picked. to every single one. Oh, okay <laughs> I mean, I listen on to all the, three record, but I listen to them. I program them into my um, my iPod Touch. I do not have an iPhone; it's an iPod Touch, and I program them into the playlist as like you know back to back to back, so I can just kind of right. hear the different approaches. All right. So the conclusion I drew, first of all, um, was that uh, Itzhak Perlman is a violinist. Violinist. He's really amazing. Okay, compared to these two other really great violinists, uh, he mm-hmm. um, he he characterizes. Um, uh, the pieces so that they kind of sound like something sort of familiar, like a familiar rhythm or like a like a type of. Um... Now the other two do that as well, Ibrahim van Fischer, but uh, he does it very consistently, and he almost always takes the faster tempo, which is really unbelievable. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Yeah, yeah he's. Uh... He's he's very fast and uh, what a, what an incredible flawless technique he had. Okay, um, now. Ibrahimova, this is the um, recording under review this week. Um, this is a double CD album, and it clocks in at an hour and 40 minutes. The other two that I heard, the Fisher and the Perlman, are all 72 minutes long. Wow. <laughs> this is a half hour longer than the other two, and it's not because it's slower. Although she does take a slower tempo on quite a few of these um, uh, you know, recordings. She, um, she does all... All I th- I don't know I didn't follow it with a score but all of the repeats, oh, okay. you know usually have right. like a a double bar and you know you, with a, a dotted that double bar I don't mean it. to repeat yeah. the section yeah because I didn't compare the other performances completely I just picked a few that of the numbers that I was most interested in and I noticed that um, you know for most of them the time length discrepancies were only you know a few seconds but then I noticed right. some were almost you know yeah, one third three, three to times one half as more. long yeah, yeah. so. That that explains it then, right? Yeah, they were like uh, some of them were under three minutes, and then hers would uh, Ibrahimovs would be six minutes long. So right. in a way, it's kind of nice to have like a, a catalog of these as they're 
as they're written like that. And, you know, mm. I like hearing the repeats generally. Um, in this case, it may have been too much of a good thing. Um, her performance, yeah, so it's a two-CD set, this one, but it, it's the price of one, thankfully. I mean, if you had to pay double for this, it would have been kind of, uh, you would have wanted to go for someone else, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, like, it, I, I singled out the number seven Posato uh, movement as being seemingly very, very long. It just kept seemed to keep going on and on with all the with all the repeats. Okay, um, but um, another odd thing about the Ibrahim of her recording is that she doesn't give any of the pieces nicknames, and mm. that kind of says something about the performance. Like some of them have nicknames, like the Hunt or you know the things like this, and uh, she just gives the directions, and it, it kind of says something about her approach. She's more into the mechanics. The, the, you know, getting the technique. Like you can see, you get the impression that she's, um, you know, locked down and she's just working this out and she recorded what she worked out, you know, as right. opposed to, uh, you know, so, someone like Perlman who's going to just kind of really trying to give a bravura performance. Now, that's not to say this isn't a, isn't a great performance. It's, it's, I don't know if it's great, but it's very good. Let me get, let me get to that. Okay. So I was kind of unexcited by this. When I was um, recording them, I was thinking, oh boy, Perlman is like so much better. And Fisher has like a nice sort of approach too. Now, Ibrahimova, she's really one of my favorite violinists. I have like all of the recordings she's made for Hyperion. I like her very, um, kind of, she's, she's got a, a smaller tone than a lot of, um, virtuoso violinists. That's kind of more sensitive. And I kind of like that kind of intimacy, you know, mostly because I don't get any in real life, but that's beside the point. Um, now in this one, she's not, she's not terribly like, you know, smaller tone. She really goes for a bigger, bolder tone in, in a lot of these and achieves it. But, um, I, Actually, I kinda, that's my main comment on these, yeah. um, you know, not being a string, player i can admire the technique and i could also appreciate the interpretation that she was doing mm -hmm. and uh, i read other reviews people talking about how you know her performance and uh interpretation of these was uh, much appreciated by violin players and i could i could follow that and understand it but uh i had a real problem with her violin tone here um mm -hmm. because well, it's upon, a little different than on other records. She's very closely recorded. Yeah. Upon yeah. Uh, first listen, when I think when I got to the second uh, number, uh, the image that came to my mind was uh, washing windows with newspaper and that squeak. Uh, uh, which which one is that? The second one? Yeah. Well, in all of her, in all of the numbers, oh, it's just a I general over, uh, overall tone. But I noticed it on there. And then when I really started comparing to... Um, you know, the other, I mean, Perlman and Mintz recordings are much older, but they have mm. a very much more dark centered tone. And then mm. even uh, Fisher, I found her tone to be, um, you know, much more uh, even and uh, enjoyable for yeah. me. And it was just mm -hmm. too much high register violin for me, which is something I don't really enjoy. But at the same time, I noticed that uh, th the other recordings, as far as uh, acoustics, are rather... Um, how can I say, uh, dead sounding. There's not a lot of room old. or hall yeah. sound. Yeah, yeah, they're old. Yeah. But even, well, the Fisher one is only 10 years old. Um, right. But there's a lot of uh, room reverb or room sound in uh, this recording. And that that's not a bad thing. But hmm. um, unless the microphone is extremely close, and that's why this uh, these uh, extreme you know, high tones uh, seem to dominate it, 
to me. Uh, I don't know. I have heard her several of her other recordings, and I don't mm-hmm. remember it as much. But with just solo violin, um, I found myself preferring the uh, the Fisher recording uh, to this yeah, one. She, she's actually. Yeah, you know, I, I preferred the uh, Perlman, I think. But uh, again, it is an old recording. You know, yes, yeah. uh, you can kind of tell it's an analog recording. Um, now, Ibrahimov often. Um, She's done quite a few uh, solo violin recordings. She did the Issa and the uh, Bach uh, sonatas and partitas as well. And there, I like them both. So I was kind of looking forward to this one. So I started out a little disappointed. But as I was, I compared these like piece by piece. And I was kind of like, ah, you know, the other two are a lot better. But then as I got went on and I heard some of her, um, like her uniqueness in, in some of these works. For example, um, I liked her, um, let's see, um, in in number six, um, the trill. Uh, it's uh, I liked her the rocking motion that she got on the uh, opening, uh, which the other two didn't do. Perlman has a much faster um, uh, approach, and Fisher was slower and got a nice haunting quality on that one. Um, the very famous one, uh, the hunt, which is number nine. Um, the, the the violin melody mimics hunting horns and <laughs> being that this is Paganini, he had more than one hunting horn. It's not just one. Right. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you can, okay. You could, you could, the line is there. Okay. I thought Promo was better in this one too. Uh, but I thought Promo was too fast. Or I thought that Ibrahimova got like a good sense of the, um, the hunt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, like I was more in that moment. I liked her in, um, Let's see, which one did I like a lot? Oh, number 13, The Devil's Laughter, which is the, um, if you listen to that, number 13, you'll hear like um, this o- these opening notes and then there'll be this descending double stopped scale. That's supposed to be The Devil's Laughter. <laughs> you know, like that. Uh, she, Ibrahimova, more than the other two, really um, characterizes here. She goes for something kind of slinky and sensuous, you know? She's like, like she's trying to seduce. It's coy, it's seductive. Um, it's 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 teasing, and then the middle section is, is something a little nastier and reckless. I thought it was really, uh, I, I characterized that performance as naughty. Okay, whereas the other two, um, Perlman went for the technique in that one, and Fisher uh, had a kind of dance feel. I I really liked her um, creativity there. Um, that's a number thirteen. Um, yeah, I have all these notes here, and they're all about Perlman because I like that recording so much. Okay. Um, and then as it went on, though, and I started to see how Ibrahimova's um, performance was different than the other two, I really started to warm to her personality because I had heard so many of her other recordings, and I kind of know a little bit about you know what she's going for. So um, I would say for this one, um, it's it's mostly for fans of this violinist. I think uh, you know if you like if you like uh, her, uh, you should definitely hear it. Um, I think if you're gonna Oh, you know, well, the thing is, there there are misses on the Perlman and Fisher recording as well, as on this one. Nobody seems to play all 24 of them, like, you know, above and beyond everybody else. Right. Um, so she's got a few here that are really good. She, she'll generally take slightly slower tempos, especially compared to Perlman. Fisher will take some slower tempos, too. But, uh, yeah, her personality comes through as they go on. And I think... I don't know that it's that she got better. I think it's more that I warmed to it or I, my ears started zeroing into to her tone and what she was doing. So I would say f- for, for fans of hers and for violin players who really want to hear these as their 
you know, with, with all the repeats and things like that, I would say, give this a listen. Now, if you don't know these works and you want to hear this recording, I would say, listen to three to six at a time, because this will drive you crazy. It's just way too much of the same sound. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, she gets, she has a fantastic sense of, um, well, all three of them do really, um, that I heard a sense of the, uh, the um with the, the the tone the note you know like so this so is just these giant leaps up to the top of the violin and she'll land right on the on the pitch that's right. the word i'm looking for the pitch and uh yeah pretty fantastic and very few squeaks you, you can hear some of those in perlman even though he's like going much much faster it's a very clean performance a little tentative at times but um enjoyable enough and if you'll if you're i, I find this violinist playing endearing so i and i found this performance endearing in parts too and that's what I would have to say about it. Give it a listen. Anything right. else? On Not that? for me. No, I'm, Not for uh, you. I can listen to solo cello for a long time, but solo violin, I have kind of a limited attention span myself for. So, um, you see, the, the Bach, um, you know, sonatas and partitas, that's generally a two hour thing. I can yeah. listen to those straight through, but they're special. You know, they're really, uh, they're really very varied and things like that. These were harder, though, because they're all kind of similar in form and then the techniques yeah. are often kind of just sort of variations on similar sort of techniques just yeah. put together in different ways yeah. probably of you know great interest to violinists and absolutely and uh, it was fun to compare anyway for yeah me. we didn't mention by the way number 24 and this is a very famous one um right. it, it's the one that was set by um rachmaninoff um singled this out as the theme in his uh paganini variations for piano um and right. uh, so it's 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 sort of a theme of variations. The most famous one of these three, and the three of these were were kind of similar. I felt like I actually liked Ibrahim as the best of the three here. And there's also these have also been uh, adapted for other instruments. Yeah. There's some performances right. of them all on guitar, right. and uh, things like that too. So, uh, mm. you know, if you, if you enjoy that program, you can find sort of other adaptations of it that may be of interest too. Yeah. One thing you want to keep in mind when you listen to Paganini, though, you hear that violin, but he had a huge influence on piano technique as well, because pianists heard him and like Liszt heard him and said, hey, that can be done on the piano, too. And he developed this whole new transcendental technique for the piano uh, out of Paganini. So Paganini has had a huge influence on music. Um, he's, some people might think it's it's kind of a bad influence because he made like, uh, you know, sort of a virtuosity a requirement for playing these instruments, which means like uh, schmoes like you and me you can't just go home and play them anymore. You need like yeah. years of schooling to be able to develop some of the techniques used to uh, to play this music. Yeah, you you know, and, and everything that came after it, really, too. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. All right, so little uh, little Paganini there. Okay, moving on. We've got some opera. Um, for you, and this is um, Ludovic Tessier's uh, recording of Verdi arias. Now, Tessier is a baritone, and I really chose this because we've been doing so many uh, sopranos this year. I don't think we even did any mezzo sopranos. I'm not really sure, but uh, we had, I figured we had to get some men's voices in there, you know. And uh, we got like uh, one of the manliest ones, the baritone voice. Uh, Tessier is a um, is a he's a he's really a romantic, big toned baritone. Sings a lot of um, Italian opera, and here, um, and he often will star. He's kind of a really good partner with um, Jonas Kaufmann, really the the big tenor 
of today. And it's my understanding that the both of them are doing an album of uh, duets that's going to come out later this year. And we'll certainly have to hear that because uh, that'll be sort of a, a, a big release, I think. I'm kind of curious to hear what they program on that. But here we have Tezier alone. Well, not alone, but um, uh, doing some arias from some baritone arias from Verdi, Verdi operas. Now, in Verdi's operas, generally the tenor has the better tunes, as does the soprano, naturally. I mean, you think of La Traviata and all these kind of fantastic um, um, arias, the violetta gets to sing. Um, but um, Baritone, he, he singled a few, he pulled out a few of these that are pretty interesting. Um, this this um, recording starts with um, a really, it has a really interesting opening. Normally, when you listen to a recording of uh, opera arias, you'll hear like the orchestra come in first and then like, you know, prepare you for the voice and then the voice comes. That's like the magic moment where you're going to hear the singer's voice. Well, um, Tezier has uh, chosen to um, program um, an aria from La Forza del Destino. Uh, he gives the recitative first, uh, Moria, Tremenda Cosa, and then goes on to the aria. Okay, after uh, El Dia Salva, okay. Uh, Urna Fatale del Mio Destino, etc. It's, it's got a lot of, it's got a long title. But this starts with no orchestral accompaniment. You turn, you push the button on your player, and the first thing you hear is Morir, <laughs> which means to die. So you're, you're already you're like, whoa, what's good? <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's this deep kind of baritone voice saying the word to die and with no accompaniment and you, it's all so stark really uh quite a mood setting moment really bold a little cheeky way to start an album of your um favorite verdi ari arias for baritone baritone morir tremenda cosa a big thing okay or an important thing okay a terrible thing tremenda okay okay uh, and he goes on. All right, so the first part of this program, um, it's 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 got a very long uh, aria. Okay, um, it's it sort of just by starting without the orchestra, you you really get the sense that you're um, getting an idea of Verdi as a dramatist and not as a, well as a composer too. But Verdi, the dramatist, comes out really strongly in this entire program. He's uh. It's, it's real. I think that's you know he had great melodies, but um, it's really the drama and the melody that really made him like the uh, you know Italy's number one basically composer as far as like being famous goes. I mean Italians love Verdi's operas. Um, let's see. Okay, the opening of the program starts um, with that. He goes into like the second uh, track now. Tessier is French, by the way. He's a French baritone, and he does um, uh, the uh, the French version of Don Carlos. He takes um, an aria from that next, and this has to do with um, oh, who's the character? It's um, I, I didn't write about this one. Oh well. Anyway, it it talks about um, the death of one of the characters. Okay, and, I really like uh, this one. Yeah. It's very dramatic and also kind of pulls out he's going really for the nobility of the baritone voice in this okay and this is really what baritone voices are are all about they kind of add weight and nobility and that's what these uh opening arias are all about uh the third track is Hernani Equesto Loco and also um going for um something a little noble here okay 
after that, uh, two, two arias from Ernani, actually. After that, in track five, he does an aria from Falstaff. And this is where this recording really picked up for me. Now, Falstaff is a baritone um, role, but he doesn't sing Falstaff here. He sings uh, Ford, okay, who um, whose wife has, along with uh, two of the other wives, have um, sent uh, letters to Falstaff uh, wanting a rendezvous with him in the woods where they're going to trick him, okay? But Ford gets um, a, a copy of the letter and thinks that his wife is uh, giving him a, a pair of horns, as it were, okay? She's, he thinks she's cuckolding him, and uh, this is... Um, this yeah, is this adult is, music. This in, is adult music uh, all the yes. way, okay? Ford is like, uh, first of all, he's really angry. Uh, there's there's um, dramatic flair in this. He starts out angry, and then he's like pathetic by the end, and, you know, he's like pleading, you know, he's he wants his wife back and all, all, all of this. And uh, we really get to hear Desier like change the... Um, you know his um his flair for dramatization. You can see why he's one of the great baritones of today. Not just for the the deep rich voice, but for his ability to like characterize um in this. I really love um this particular aria. This is the first one that has real emotional ugliness in it, and I really love that about opera. You know, just the just these awful emotions that you just don't ever want to feel, but somehow you love seeing other characters portray on the stage. Um, it, 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 it feels, it, it feels really, really terrible. Um, Ford is like this and Iago is like this too from Otello. We'll talk about that later. Um, I also love in these kind of arias, like in, in, in Fossa, when they, when the, the characters get angry, they'll like just hurl out these words like, Soto, Sol, no, I said it wrong. Sol, Soto. Rail, like they're throwing darts at somebody, you know, and these pointed words are just landing at their target. Uh, it's really a, a nice technique, and uh, he uh, he really makes those words feel pointed here. I really enjoy that. <laughs> okay, okay. There's a little bit, of, by the way, in this performance. Um, if you remember the uh, baritone, if any if anyone's older than us, uh, the baritone Tito Gobi kind of comes to mind in this particular aria. Although Gobi played Falstaff very very uh, famously, there's a little bit of that kind of like that. Gobi would do like this nasally sound when he was being really sinister, like he'd kind of get a little bit of the tone through his nose, and it would just sound kind of ugly, you know, like the character he was playing. Um, I, I heard a little bit of that in um, Tessier's voice here. Okay, after that, we move on to Il Trovatore, um, where the Conte di Luna is expressing his tempestuous love for Leonora. Oh, he, he wants her. The passion doesn't come across as strongly in, in Tessier, but um, it's very good. It just might be his interpretation um, of her, like uh, this, because this character ultimately isn't worthy of Leonora, and uh, he kind of sounds like he might feel he's unworthy in this um, in this aria. Next we have um, La Traviata, one of the most famous uh, operas ever, and um, he's singing uh, Germant's father here, and uh, Germant's father is kind of a real stick in the mud in this um, opera. He's got two really beautiful but very square sort of um, arias, and this is one of them. This is uh, Di Provenza il Mar, which he sings to his son, trying to get him to come home from the uh, the wayward woman, the Traviata Violetta, okay? And uh, this song, it's like a folk song. It repeats, you know, it has these even lines. Uh, the words repeat a lot. Um, it's a real tricky aria to sing because it can sound really wooden in the hands of like a, 
you know, just an amateur singer. They'll just tend to keep, you know, singing the words and not really characterize. But um, Tezier, as you could imagine, being the top baritone he is, keeps it interesting. Um, yeah, one, but varying his tone on the word, you know, you know isolating He makes a words. great climax uh, in yeah. this one. Um, mm-hmm. You just think he can't have any more, but in in that... Um, I mean, he just he just keeps it building, and uh, yeah. I was really impressed with uh, you know that. But climax but he kind of kinda reins it in enough to not be maudlin, and that's a real trick in an aria like this because this could really sound like kind of you know. Well, maudlin. <laughs> he uh, he he has this pleading quality in his voice, and he subtly varies the repetitions. It's just really beautiful singing, really uh, making this aria really work. Okay, and then we get uh, Macbeth. He's Macbeth here. Uh, this is another one of these great dramatic interpretations where Macbeth starts out uh, overconfident. You know, he's definitely going to win, like his, because uh, he knows that he's he's been prophesied that uh, no woman born of man will defeat him. Okay, and uh, so he's just like just hurling out these these kind of like uh, threats to his enemy in this one. Uh, the next one we have uh, Nabucco pleading with God, and I feel I felt like Tezier was really in his element in in this particular aria. He's got that nobility, and he's also got this this higher power that he's trying to uh, to uh, you know make a deal with, shall we say? Then came for me the highlight of the whole the whole recording because I love this um, this aria. This is Iago his um, his uh, credo. Uh, to the evil god that he believes in, and it's just this this awful feeling kind of like really powerful lyric with uh, fantastic little orchestral stabs in it, and uh, just his his sort of evil and craziness really comes out in this. Um, oh, I just love it. You know, <laughs> it's, it really makes you feel awful in a fascinating kind of way. You know, sort of like a. You know, just the, the you watching watching like a like a car wreck or something like that from far away. It's it's just this fascinating thing watching this evil person uh, spout off about his um, crazy beliefs. <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, I want to say there's something really weird happened on this track, the uh, Otello one, and it happened in the next Rigoletto one too. The orchestra seems like it's recorded much closer on these two tracks, and he actually um, Tezia's voice. It, one of the in one of the lines actually gets covered over by the orchestra. I was kind of wondering about that. What's happening with the engineering here? Rigoletto sounds like it was recorded the same way. And in this one, he's um, portraying the hunchback Rigoletto, um, who um, feels like everybody's against him, and he's like lashing out at them. But as the opera, as the as the uh, aria goes on, he starts pleading, you know, about his daughter who he loves way too much and will pay the price for at the end. Um, that it's the only thing he has. He's kind of an evil character himself, but he loves his daughter, and he's just pleading with them to leave her alone, let him have her, and then they could come for him if they want. Um, very touching. Okay, a little human uh, element to Rigoletto in the aria Cortigiani Vil Razza Danata, vile, damned race of people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We get two two from uh, two aries from Umbalo in Mascara. One is kind of like a uh, a love song, "A la vita che taride," and then uh, "Alzati la tua fi- tua figlio" um, has a, again the emotional uh, going on the emotional rack again. Okay, complex emotions: threat, regret, hatred, 
and it's very and ends in heartbreak you know, or in a heartbreaking ending. You really feel for this character. The last track on the album is the is aria number two again, only this time sung in Italian. Um, again from uh, Don Carlos. Uh, really nice. I like this better in Italian, to be honest. The original was in French, by the way. He uh, Verdi had gone to France and written it for a French premiere. Um, but there was an Italian version made of it too, like uh, and premiered, uh, I guess, a year or two later. So anyway, recommended. I would say I was happy to hear this voice. Uh, nice to hear a baritone too. You don't really get too many uh, solo recital from baritones these days, and uh, this is one of the best out there at the moment. So give it a listen. I would say, especially your opera fans. Yeah, for me, um, now I can watch an opera and enjoy it, but if I'm just listening. Uh, to opera excerpts or something, uh, I really tend to be drawn to the more song-like numbers rather than mm-hmm. any recitations. Um, and because well, you, you often don't know what's happening in the recitations yeah, too, unless you know the opera. I don't know much Italian either. So, um, but uh, Verdi has, you know, he has the best melodies, doesn't he? I mean, his melodies yeah, are always great. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, when I heard uh, Tizio's voice, um, you know. Anyone's reaction to a voice are very personal, um, whether it's a spoken voice or a singing voice. And you either warm to it or it rubs you the wrong way. But he has a voice that I could listen to all day. I mean, he could read menus or something and it would be great. You know? <laughs> Baritones are nice on the ears in general, yeah. I feel. You know? And so it's, it's not just that They're the reassuring. tone of his voice. What I like about it, he has great power. He has range. Throughout his range, he has a ba- completely balanced tone. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. he doesn't become something different when he's uh, going higher or lower. And most right. of all, he has incredible control. Um, so his tone is never sacrificed in this. And then what I noticed also is that he really shows restraint, um, yeah. which we don't get a lot of with, you know, some other like tenors and sopranos. Sometimes, you know, I feel like I'm beaten up. But <laughs> C- certainly not with sopranos. Yeah. What I notice here is like in this recording, what because I looked up how it was recorded because I was interested in the sound of it. Uh, he always saves enough for when the orchestra comes in behind him that he's mm-hmm. got that much more and he balances it really well and leaves enough for the climax. So right. he never starts, you know, beyond what he's going to be able to project to the end right, he point paces that he needs himself to go to. Yeah. Really well. And uh, he does that really well. And more so, of a true professional. <laughs> yeah. And what I noticed also in this recording, uh, it's extremely warm sounding recording the the high frequencies are very tempered um yeah you weren't right. going to get a lot of uh you know outstanding strings or other kind of detail coming through so the voice is always uh sort of easily heard but i also found out it was largely done with just two omni mics and so uh he, I, I read an interview with him and he talked about how it was recorded and they, yeah. they used a few other mics maybe to bring out a harp sound or something in small parts, but basically it was two mics. So I imagine that um, they had, you know, calculated the distances very well. So maybe on those points where uh, the orchestra seems to overtake him or something, maybe he mm. had moved or something, you know, unexpected May, yeah, had that's happened. A, you always have to keep yeah. that in mind, yeah, because people move, you know, they, they're not just standing in front of the microphone. Often they'll kind of like emote and they'll sort of lean back yeah. or something and you kind of lose a, a little bit of their sound. But despite that, with this just to mic recording, it does sound really natural. Uh, you know, the voice is, 
is right there with the instruments and the balance is very good for you know almost everything uh but it sounds surprisingly a little bit dark uh which i kind of liked uh because his voice was always you know right there and and present you could sort of you know almost see him uh, right there so uh even myself not a great opera fan i was a huge fan of his voice uh so my uh comment on liking the song like numbers my favorite picks were track two uh and then of course we have the italian version of it but the uh écoute is that it in french from the don carlos act four yeah, écoute écoute uh track four carlos the, écoute <laughs> the uh ernani vieni meco sol de rose yeah. this one what amazed me with this one is uh uh is despite having this really big you know voice he has great little nuances and great facility yeah. with it too and well that's what makes this a great kind of performance yeah because yeah, yeah. Uh, that was good and i like uh, that's that's what really made his uh di provenzo mar from la traviata work okay because yep, that's, that's the other one that i put down to uh track mm-hmm. seven and yeah. then uh track nine the uh Nabucco, uh, Nabucco. D-O-D, D-O-D. Yeah, Nabucco is uh, yeah. the King Nebuchadnezzar. That's yeah. his, his Italian name is Nabucco. So, yeah, I like are, that one a lot too. Those Very are my dramatic. favorite ones that uh, I thought they can stand on their own. You can listen to them anytime without you know thinking about uh, the story or uh, too much like that. Uh, right. Amazing I vocal the, performance. Uh, my favorite track is just because I love the uh, the uh, the whole like the the power and the. Uh, the, just the whole ugliness of the emotion in it is uh, what is it Credo in un Dio Crudele Crudel by, uh, from Otello where he's playing Iago it's a really show-stopping moment if you ever see the opera really really uh, powerful you know what you're dealing with here <laughs> especially if you get a great baritone in that role Okay, yeah, so I really wouldn't mind hearing this guy. He's got such a nice, appealing voice. I wouldn't mind him doing some sort of like a, you know, a recording of more popular songs. Just oh, to sure, kinda, yeah. I'll have to see yeah, what else he can do. Maybe a Christmas album or something, you know? It'd yeah. be nice. Yeah, why not? Anyway, get on it, Ludovic. <laughs> anyway. Do all right, those, well. Uh, individual right. home and, recordings and see what you can come up with. Right. All right, and the last, my last offering for today is we're really stuck in the 19th century and entered in, we're going to now enter into the early 20th a bit too with um, a recording on the Chandos label called uh, Belle Epoque, which is French music for wind performed by the Orsino Ensemble with Pavel Kolesnikov on piano. Kolesnikov records for the Hyperion label. And uh, he's a he's rather an interesting pianist uh, in general. He um, in his solo recordings, we we talked about um, well not on the show, but he did a rec- his most recent recording was a set of the Bach Goldberg variations, which was a rather eclectic uh, combination of uh, modern piano and uh, harpsichord techniques that he played on a on a piano. It kind of came off sounding really uh, unique, and it really depended on your taste, whether you liked it or not. Well, anyway, he's in very fine form here. He's got a really light touch when he wants it, and he uses that throughout this recording. Works now, well on this French music, yeah. Yeah, on this French music. It's yeah, and oh man, this is this this entire album for me was just a delight from beginning to end. It's all fairly light music. It's there's a little dark places, but not sinister dark. It's just kind of like uh, darker toned. I'm thinking of the uh, 
the, the last movement of the Andre Caplet, which kind of comes across um, the quintet, Opus 8, which kind of comes across uh, as more kind of dramatic, which is kind of unusual for this music. Um, the, 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 the French composers of this era were really going for something else. I think they were trying to get away from romantic drama, and they wanted to uh, do something a little lighter, but not without content, okay? There's a, there's a difference, if we understand. You can do, like, light music, but not lightweight. You know, lightweight means there's not no interest uh, harmonically in it or something like that, or it's you know it's just not inventive. This music is very very inventive, but it's um also not gonna make you feel you know it's not gonna weigh you down with its emotions. It's kind of it's really pleasant, great morning music, sort of like a lot of baroque music too. It opened now. I want to mention also the Orsino Ensemble has a um the the standout player in this one turns out to be the flautist Adam Walker. Um, and we're going to hear more about, from him next week because he's uh, he. I, sh- I really should have paired these together, but uh, I thought I wanted to. Um, well, I'll explain why I didn't. Yeah, at, he can at get the a end. really a really yeah. impressive fat sound out of the flute that's very warm. Yeah. Uh, I noticed that in a, in a lot of points on this uh, recording. Yeah, this album came out at the same at the same time or a week apart at least from uh, another album that he's featured on. He's the uh, the lead on the whole album. And we'll hear that. We'll talk about that one next week. Next week, we're going to have all French music actually. So from the uh, classical department anyway. Mm. Yeah. I'm excited about that. All right. Well, this album starts with a work, uh, divertissement opus six from, by Albert Roussel. And this really just sets the mood of this recording exceptionally well. It's divertissement means like, uh, just a fun piece or just something kind of light. And this, yeah, this is it's just light and chirpy and bouncy and um the thing about French composers that you want to keep in mind and this is really noticeable uh, with all these um variations of wind instruments on this album is that they go they really French composers tend to um tend to they generally do um compose to the timbre of the instrument like they'll give the piece a certain character depending on what instruments are playing right. it like that'll dictate like what's going to happen in the piece as opposed to say just being like a coloring you know like yeah. like composers will like color the melody and, th- and pass the melody a, around really one of the better ones on the recording because it has the most different uh timbres yeah. you've got flute oboe clarinet bassoon horn and piano so you have a whole yeah, that's palette. the entire ens- that's the entire yeah. ensemble in fact you got a whole uh, the- palette in this one uh song here this one composition and uh yeah all of the instruments are are used very interestingly and so that variety um yeah makes it really fun it's a kind of a lighter movement uh but exploring the different instruments and what how they work together is really good on this one yeah fun is a good word for this this would be a fantastic work to wake up to in the morning i think it really kind of put you in a good mood for the whole day i wrote spirited and dreamy um, so when yeah. you're sort of not fully awake, this would be a good one. Yeah, it's spirit. It goes between different melodies, and it starts out in this really spirited, upy way, and then goes into a more dreamy, sort of like, uh, sort of daydreamy, sort of uh, section. Um, I really loved it, and uh, that really put me in the right mood. And the rest of it just uh, flowed beautifully. Next, we have two wor- two works that aren't really very well known by uh, Debussy. Um, Petit Pies, which is uh, for clarinet and piano. This is very short, a minute and a half, but it kind of just sets a mood. And then we get the Premier Rhapsody for uh, clarinet and piano, which I think was a, a work that he uh, wrote for a student competition. Um, very moody. The clarinet um, was still sort of... Uh, 
the clarinet has a really interesting history. It really started with um, Mozart, you know, like making it a solo instrument first, and then Brahms was really you know, hundred years later was the next composer to really feature it. And then the um, you know because of their love of timbre, the French composers really picked it up and went with it. Debussy gets draws a darker tone out of it. It's kind of he likes to stay in the lower end a lot, I think, in this very moody piece. Yeah, it's got um, and, it's got and happy and playful sections, but then yeah. it's kind of mysterious and mischievous in other parts. So I think he's exploring yeah. the different kind of moods you can get when you go into that lower register, especially. Yeah, he gets a little jazzy too. You can kind of hear he had a little bit of an ear for uh, mm-hmm. for jazz as well, or at least the the early jazz from the nineteen tens or so. You know that sort of uh, thing. Next comes um, Camille Saint Saens, and uh, as we mentioned, this is the. Uh, 100th anniversary of Saint-Saëns' death this year, so here we have another recording with him on it. Um, the Romance, um, Opus 36, is is uh, they like to do this short, long kind of um, uh, pairing here. Um, this this um, I forget who, what this was for. Um, you know, it acts as an introduction to the next, the Caprice sur désert danois et russe, Danish and Russian uh, songs. And they, they sound like folk songs to me, and these melodies are just really just grab you by the ear uh, really quickly, as do the uh, the uh, instruments that he decides to uh, set, you know, to, to set with the melodies here. What I noticed on this one that was interesting to me is um, not only the blend of the... Uh, woodwind instruments here but the way he uses the piano instead of just as a backing uh, instrument with chords uh, sometimes he uses the piano in lines along with the instruments to fill out the mm-hmm. harmonies and you know but they're playing you know playing along on the same type of line which really changes the effect of you know the balance of you know because you have these we're here with mm-hmm. flute oboe clarinet uh, so you've got primarily high register but when you add a piano, you know, as another voice or two in that line, uh, mm-hmm. you can get, you know, a, a different impression other than just having, you know, only, you know, high woodwinds there. And so he alternates and he's able to create even bigger sort of, um, you know, a canvas of different effects by, by using the piano also as a melody instrument uh, or, you know, in part of those lines. So I, I liked that kind of variety in this piece. Yeah, he made he really he did that to link together the um the, the, these melodies which are folk melodies and he kind of made them feel feel a little more sophisticated in that way. Next we have a concertino opus 107 by Cecile Chaminade, a woman composer who's starting to get more um notice, which I'm really happy about. There were some great especially like French women composers who uh they had their day I mean, when they were alive they got performances and then once they died like people didn't program them anymore but now we're starting to hear them a lot again and this, they're very much a part of that time um, th- their music really fits in very well with what was happening and I'd, I'd really yeah. like to hear more of this, this as well one, this, this is a nice is, piece uh, very yeah. modern sounding harmonies in it I noticed yeah. um, 1902 yeah so it's, yeah, it's right on the modernist cusp harmonies I guess yeah. yeah this was um Oh, I didn't get the. Uh, <laughs> I wrote down the instrumentation in my <laughs> in my device here, but I don't have it ready for oh, this me. This is okay. just flute and piano. Um, okay, but um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, it, it's got a lot of difficult runs, but the overall um, mood of it is it's both stately but also kind of pretty. 
so it, it, it creates, uh, with the rhythms in it, a kind of dignified presence, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't become uh, unattractive at all. The, the tonality is very beautiful in, in, in it. So, yeah, it was an interesting piece. Yeah, as it is all through this album. Okay, next we have two uh, nocturnes by Charles Koechlin, uh, a composer who you may not have heard of, but you really should uh, investigate. This is another one of these guys that wrote um, more pieces than it seems like he had. He 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 could have done in a single lifetime. Uh, he's got this huge catalog, maybe of over four hundred works or something yeah, like and, that. And someone I'm not familiar with, really, mm-hmm. and uh, yet this uh, one here. Uh, the number seven, uh, track seven. Uh, this is one of my favorite uh, here because this is um, for horn, flute, and piano. Right. And this uh, theme here, the uh, tranquillo, uh, sad. It's so sad and beautiful at the same time. And it's horn and flute, which really don't, you know, that, that's pretty uh, opposite timbres. But he uses them uh, so well. Uh, in the because piece French with, composers have miraculous yeah. ears, he's able to combine them in interesting the, ways. The contrast of those two. Uh, yeah, I, I had to listen to this one a few times because uh, it's just a great uh, theme in this piece. So, um, yeah, one of my favorites on the whole recording. Yeah, actually, I have a whole recording of uh, works that he wrote for the horn and piano. You probably like it a lot. I like it's, it. it's an old one. Over sometime. I, I must have played it for you like decades could ago, be, maybe. Could be. <laughs> It could be, because I don't think I would have missed that chance. Okay, anyway, after Coechlin, we get to the, the centerpiece of the um, recording, which is Andre Caplet's Quintet. This this features the entire ensemble, along with Kolesnikov on the piano. It's a four-movement work. It's the only multi-movement uh, work on the recording. And uh goes through the uh, various... It's a little bit of a... I don't know how to characterize this. It starts out fairly light, but by the end, it, there's a little bit of uh, darkness and adventure, okay? Right. It's got a really pretty slow movement and a rather uh, jokey, light kind of scherzo movement on the, in the third movement. The fourth movement is surprisingly dramatic and kind of builds to this um, kind of very satisfying climax. And uh, it's, it was, it's well worth hearing. Uh, there are a lot of ideas in it. It's uh, just a, a kind of little gem that we really um, should hear more of, really. This is a composer I don't, I don't really know anything about either, to be yeah. honest. He doesn't get recorded much. Each of the movements is uh, got a lot of unique things in it. And then, the, like yeah. you said, the fourth one... It, it it's, kinda, it's very... jumps around quite a it bit. It starts so out bright and moods. intense, and then you think mm. you know what it's going to be like, and then it, it has a lot yeah. of twists and turns and changes of emotion... Uh, in it, uh, so I was surprised. Uh, you know, I thought, oh, he's you know already showed a lot of different scenes in the first three movements. So the fourth one is going to be, you know, uh, you know, I saw, you know, uh, yeah. Allegro con Foco. So I thought it's going to be a straight con kind Foco, of dash yeah. to the end. But no, 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 right. it's uh, got some other places to go still yet, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a capriccio. What Italians would call a capriccio, which kind of means like a sort of um just an imaginative thing whatever you want goes on it it's like a capriccio yeah. so a pizza capriccioso would be whatever the pizzaiolo wants to put on it basically it's just going to be inventive and it is it that it's scary very, in Japan though, you know. in Japan it could be yeah you don't want to you don't want to tell them what it means a little fish with eyeballs and uh, oh you don't know what's yeah. going to go on there oh or mentaiko even worse mentaiko oh man they, they put that stuff on spaghetti I think that's just not right I don't know. They like it, though. I mean, hey, I'm not... I have my own theory of pizza, even though I don't eat it much anymore. It's a very limited uh, 
Can't yeah. be capriccioso at all. Yeah. Well, capriccioso in Italy is always good. It's always kind of, it's sort of become a set thing. It just kind of was capriccioso yeah. when the guy invented it, I guess. All right. The last work on this um, is a solo flute um, work by W.C. called Syrinx. And he phrases this so beautifully. It's got, um, he, he pulls like all the mystery out of it. This is, there's a lot of, um, a modal um, melody in this um, and it outlines like you know certain harmonies and stuff it's just a solo flute line it comes across as very mysterious and kind of like uh, mm-hmm. um, what, what's the word um, oh, I can't think of the adjective for like, wrote, like uh, woodsy or something you know from something from descending the... lines uh, okay yeah um, yeah kind of he's going for like his um, his favorite kind of Greek theme and I'm kind of glad was, um, that I incidental music for a play or something uh, yeah. in the notes originally so, uh, it was probably you know he was trying to evoke some certain kind of scene or background right. with it and uh, it is very mysterious I imagine the flute of Pan or something like that mm. something kind of you know something yeah anyway I was kind of glad that it ended on this um, one, I was originally thinking of pairing this album with the Adam Walker uh, flute and piano uh album that I'm going to feature next week, but I'm kind of glad I didn't because it ends with Adam Walker here on the flute, and we have like a little dot, dot, dot to lead us into next week. I'm kind of happy about that when we'll hear, when we'll be talking about Adam Walker's uh, solo. Yeah, gorgeous um, flute sound. According. Yeah, he yeah. has a gorgeous sound and a gorgeous um, sense of phrasing and mm-hmm. uh, dynamics, so I'm really looking forward to hearing next week's recording. Yeah, All this right, album so is, um, yeah, it, I mean, it it sounds, uh, you know, inescapably French in a, in, uh, in a good way. In a good way. The timbres of each instrument are all, you know, duly considered and used to their best advantage. Um, you know, most of it's right at the end of the... Uh, Kolesnikov's uh, light touch on the piano really makes magic happen, too, in yeah, the, uh, in the uh, pieces that he's on. Late 19th century, early 20th century, where lots of these interesting harmonic ideas are kind of busting out. And um, it's light without being frivolous. Um, yeah. And it's fun, but also, um, you know, it takes you into some unexpected places in a lot of the pieces. So I found all of them really enjoying. And as a program, it's all really well matched, too. So. Yeah. I want to mention, um, you know, this was also the era that uh, Proust's um, salons were happening in. So we heard those two uh, Proust right. salon recordings a few weeks back. This this could go in with that. And if you think about this era, um, what a, what a, I don't know what it was. I don't know. People kind of think about um, the, uh, you know, the, the Belle Epoque as being a special time. I guess it is if you were like a, you know, a wealthy person. I mean, <laughs> right. if you're a peasant or a working person, I think every era is pretty much the same. But uh, you know, if you if you were in that uh, that um, class of uh, society, this must have been a really magical time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about to it was all about to break down, and uh, the music was really magical. Um, have you by the way have you ever seen uh, Mid- that Woody Allen movie Midnight in Paris? Yeah, I've seen that. Sure. Yeah, um, when he goes, he manages to go back in time in this coach, and he's in the uh, the 1920s when Hemingway and Fitzgerald are around. He meets this. Uh, Picasso's girlfriend, Marion Cotillard, who prefers the Belle Epoque, and they go back to the Belle Epoque. And uh, with the music there, I think I might have, I don't know, I like the 1920s too, but uh, 
musically it really evokes a, a magical time and uh you get a lot of that on this recording i would highly highly rec- recommend that everybody just listen to this just to cheer you up especially if you're in lockdown or if, i don't know what's going on in the rest of the world we're not locked down in japan but things are a little depressing here because things are closed but um if you're still feeling like in your house this this can really lift you up i would give it a listen absolutely i think you'll really enjoy it yeah it's good for the morning it's good for an afternoon it's good with yeah. some french wine um Anytime, really. This is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And that's what we have. We have this really eclectic, uh, all from the same century, but very different kinds of music this week in classical. Yeah. I think it's time for some jazz. Yeah. We're on on to the jazz. 20th century. Here we go. So we're going to go, first of all, upstream. What well, 21st century now, I guess, because these are all new. That's right. Yeah. This one We're just been everything's out, new in jazz now. Just been out a week or so. I've been waiting for this album to come out for a while it's by, because it's by one of my favorite trumpeters, uh, the Russian-born Alex Sipiagin. And now, how did you hear about this guy? Well, I'll get to that in a moment. <clears throat> oh, yeah, okay. um, this album <laughs> is uh, yeah upstream, as I said, on Positone Records, uh, and it features uh, Alex Sipiagin on trumpet and flugelhorn. Uh, Art Hirahara on piano, uh, mm-hmm. Boris Kozlov on bass, uh, who we heard back on our duo by duo uh, right. episode two, episode maybe. with um, uh, yeah, David Kikoski was the piano right. on that one, yeah. and uh, great young drummer Rudy Royston on drums. Uh, and so, Spijin, I guess he's uh, he would be fifty three years old. He's from uh, Yaroslav, Russia, but he came to New York in uh, nineteen ninety one. He's got around eighteen or so albums as a leader, uh, and he put out a great album uh, at the end of last year called Joust, which is a duet uh, with Kikoski, uh, mm-hmm. just trumpet and piano. That's a really good one. And I'll have um, to hear that too. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, it's really nice. And I think I first got to know him from uh, Mingus Big Band he was involved in earlier and then he was a member of uh, Kikoski's uh, Opus 5 uh, group uh, Quintet and uh, that's when I noticed him as a soloist and I said oh this is a guy I want to follow uh, because he's a really uh, unique trumpet player though I read in an article that uh, he's leaving New York to move to northern Italy Hmm. Uh, but there's good stuff happening there yeah so We'll have to get uh, in touch with our man on the ground in Milan, old Nathan, and see if uh, Alex Sipiagin is going to be playing out uh, maybe the Blue Note Milan or something. Uh, get oh, that could be that. cool. That would be yeah. good. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, this is uh, one I've been waiting for. And so the album starts out with a song called Call. And uh, you'll get to see uh, the approach that uh, Sipiagin takes um, in his own music uh, uh, right away here. Um, he sort of abandons uh, traditional kind of diatonic playing, and uh, he goes for a real furious chromatic approach here. So he comes out uh, right out of the gate here with lots of uh, furious chromatics and high screams uh, from the head into his solo. And we've got uh, some really nice piano backing from Hirohara and uh free drumming from Royston and then the tune settles down again with some bass and goes back to the theme and then uh, Sipijin comes back and he kind of squeezes out some more angst at the end so you get the feeling this tune is sort of a cathartic uh, release uh, in a sort of modern chromatic style of playing 
Um, yeah, when you hear an album that starts like this, you think, "Oh man, this is going to be a really rough, uh, <laughs> rough yeah. outing." But it, th- that's actually not the case. Uh, this no. is the only track like this on the album. It's really aggressive. I have that I yeah, this that I wrote is here. Really aggressive, which kind yeah. of surprises me um, because if you hear his Joust or what he records with uh, Kikoski, it, it's much more mainstream. And um, mm-hmm. so I get a feeling, you know, this is sort of a, a style of playing he's uh, worked to develop. And if the whole album was like that, it might be, you know, a bit like a getting hit with a hammer <laughs> too yeah. much. Um, well, it depends but, on what he did with it. But yeah, if it, yeah. You know, if it was going to, you know. But it really, it really uh, expresses, uh, yeah, this uh, kind of feeling of angst. But that's tempered by the next movement, which is a nice ballad called Echo Canyon. And this was written by the pianist Hirohara. It's a complete change of pace, uh, and uh, Sipiogen switches over to flugelhorn, and uh, he has some really nice uh, lyrical playing. And his sound on flugelhorn is really centered. Uh, it's not one of these like fluffy sounds, but uh, it's a rounded tone, but uh, like I say, it's a focused kind of sound. Then uh, Hirohara has a nice piano sound with like really huge chords, and uh, Sipiogen really then he comes back and he pushes hard on the flugelhorn, goes up higher than you might normally hear on this instrument, but then he brings it down to a mellow close uh, at the end. Um, the third track is called Sight, and uh, this starts out with some nice bouncing bass, and Hirahara switches over to the Rhodes piano, which... Yep. Uh, it's always nice to hear sometimes some electric piano. Well, well these days, back in the day, I was getting fed up with it. But now yeah. it's nice to hear because it's such an old sound that doesn't get used so much yeah. anymore. And so it's yeah. got, this tune has a nice syncopated uh, trumpet theme, a lot of uh, tasty drumming and uh, uh, feeding uh, another kind of really searchingly harmonic trumpet solo. And you you get a sense by this far that Sipiogen doesn't play cliches. So mm. he doesn't really sound like uh, any other you know, players too much. Uh, he's really interested in doing his own thing. And uh, there's a nice Rhodes piano solo in this tune too. And for the uh, next tune, we're on to um, Sipatham, uh, which I believe is some kind of combination of his name and his wife's name. Uh, mm-hmm. But here we're um, back to acoustic piano. Uh, it's kind of an interesting melody that pauses um, uh, and under it, the rhythm, the rhythm and motion uh, makes a nice, interesting contrast. Um, and Sipiogen has another adventurous solo here, uh, a nice piano solo with lots of inventive rhythmic improvisations, and then then the trumpet and piano trade to the end, uh, sort of bringing us to a finish. Yeah, you know, one of the things I wrote about this album, by the way, I, I've in my notes, I've just got. I'm remarking on the piano all the way through is Art Hirahara. He's he's a fantastic pianist. <laughs> he's he really, really great, yeah. He yeah, he really makes this album well, you know, sort of sippy again, sippy again. But yeah, I was really being pulled in by his playing a lot, and uh, keep an ear out for that when you give this a listen, which you should yeah, he's absolutely a really nice touch do. And uh, yeah. yeah, very intriguing sound. Uh, the next tune is uh, Magic Square, and this yeah. is uh, by Kozlov. Uh, back to a uh, Rhodes piano and also electric bass so it sort of changes the whole uh, mood here uh, what I liked about this one is uh, the bass doubles the trumpet melody so you have you know bass and trumpet on the lead sound but when the trumpet leaves gaps in the melody the bass goes back to adding fills in so it's a really interesting effect uh, having the, the melody in both the bass and the trumpet um, the in the uh, drums there's lots of changing 
uh, up of these hard driving drum beats, uh, which lock in with the bass and keyboards as, uh, you know, support from the rhythm section. And uh, then you, you get uh, a muted solo here by Scipio uh, um, Jin, which is kind of cool. And then uh, a drum solo with a lot of tricky tom work uh, for a different effect in this one. Yeah, so it's kind of... Yeah, this is practically a rock drum yeah. solo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, this one is getting uh, more towards it's a fusion-y even... sound with that electric bass and the heavy drums, right? Right. Um, it was exciting. 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 It was exciting. Yeah. Nice contrast. It was an exciting track, yeah. Uh, and then we get to uh, a really pretty one called Rain. And uh, this is where Hirahara really shines uh, mm. here. Uh, it's a ballad with... Uh, a really sparse piano opening and the bass comes in really, really low down in the lowest register. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Sipi Jim plays flugel on the uplifting uplifting melody, which is nice. Uh, really delicate piano solo with a nice touch and a well-composed uh, flugel solo. Um, a tasty kind of bass interlude. You can almost like taste the wood of the bass. It's so woody sounding, uh, mm -hmm. especially after that electric uh, tune. And then, uh, again, uh, Sipijin doesn't hold back. He pushes that flugel for a bit. <laughs> you think this yeah. is going to be an easy ballad, uh, but he has to get a little bit of that angst out again. But he brings it back down to a kind of mellow finish. Um, then we've got uh, a tune called Shura. And this is also by Kozlov, uh, a real funky bass intro. Uh, it's in kind of a 6 eighths. Uh, meter with interesting syncopated figures. Um, and what I, Sipiogen's solo here is really amazing. It's got a lot of really long flowing lines, but all the ideas are really interconnected. It kind of remind me a lot of Tom Harrell's soloing. Uh, and Tom Harrell doesn't really, you know, play in a similar way to Sipiogen, but this ability to, um, sort of make real compositions in improvised solos with connecting ideas that cross over, you know, different, you know, phrase things. And the ideas continue logically really well. So they get this inevitable kind of quality to them. Uh, and so that was, uh, this solo I thought was particularly well uh, thought out or uh, even on the spot. Uh, we get a nice piano solo over some subdivided drumming, and then, again, uh, again. <laughs> again, and uh, the drum drum solo over, or uh, but not alone over piano and bass that kind of pushes it to the end. So it's kind of a neat tune by Kozlov. He seems to be uh, have a knack for composing real catchy tunes. Um, then we've got the only uh, non-band composed song. We've got a cover of the Wayne Shorter tune uh, Miyako. Uh, which I believe was the name of his daughter. I think he married a Japanese-American woman for a short time, although it didn't work out. Um, and some of his tunes are credited to like Miyako music or something sometimes. So, uh, And this one really gets the proper ballad uh, treatment. Uh, Sipiogen, you know, he pays respect to this, uh, you know, Wayne Shorter composition. He, he, the melody is really tenderly played on the flugelhorn. Uh, and his solo is really relaxed, um, pulling the beauty out of the notes. So a nice treatment of this Wayne Shorter classic original tune. And the album uh, finishes up with a tune called Upstream, um, which I read was maybe inspired by a painting of like Volga boatmen or something pulling a boat <laughs> up the stream. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, this is kind of cool. Uh, back to the roads. It starts with a kind of hypnotic alternating chord roads intro. And then uh, 
Sibujin builds on the tension implied in that kind of harmony. We've got electric bass again here. Uh, he really um, does some chromatic gymnastics in the trumpet solo uh, here. Uh, the piano solo is cool again over this really tight drum and bass groove. And uh, yeah, really great drumming on the whole album uh, and this song here and a nice tight solo. Um, yeah, so it kind of goes back to the kind of mood that was set at the beginning of the album with Call. So yeah, uh, all in all, it's a really interesting album. The the players who support uh, Sipujin here are all really great and have their own unique uh, personality. And uh, you can see uh, what uh, his approach is uh, with his, particularly his use of, uh, you know, harmony and uh, the things he, the lines that he highlights in his solos. Uh, he's really one of the more forward thinking trumpet players out there. And I think he should be better known. Um, but uh, if he is really going to Italy, we'll have to see you. Uh, what happens next with him. But uh, yeah, he's a player I always find really interesting and um, always looking forward to see what kind of uh, new releases he has. Maybe he's going to play to Italy to play with uh, Enrico Pieranunzi, which is uh, another great pianist that we discovered earlier this year. At least I did anyway. Yeah. It would be great, yeah. Um, I don't know that he'd get more famous in Italy, but um, I don't know. Maybe he feels like he's exhausted New York and he's ready for something new. Certainly, there are a lot of great players in Italy, even though we never in the United States, you never hear about them. Maybe in Japan, we're a little more uh, well-placed to kind of get the whole map. Because Japanese people really love jazz, actually. Like, older Japanese people tend to really love it. So they... uh, yeah, they, they have their ears out for really anything, not just American jazz and what's going on in America. Yeah, but they tend um, to sometimes miss the sort of newest players on the international mm-hmm. scene, so. Yeah, that's true. I want to say, though, speaking of uh, great pianists, uh, Art Hirahara, I want to hear a solo album by him. This was just fantastic. I was really uh, enjoying his playing throughout this record. Uh, he, he had a lot of really interesting ideas, beautiful technique, really nice light sound. Um and he a nice and a good touch, yeah. a light touch. I really uh, enjoyed his playing a lot. So I'm kind of curious to okay. see where else he pops up. I'll take a look so, and see what. Uh, yeah, okay, write that down. Maybe we'll do doing. a future. Uh, yeah, Hirahara. Um, Hirahara. I don't know. Is he, uh, Hirahara. Nise, Japanese American. Is he a Nise Japanese American? I don't know. I'll find out. Yeah, because I really enjoyed his yeah. playing here. We got to yeah, hear more. Too. Yeah, he he stood out for me. Uh, throughout the album, not just on one track either, right. just through, on every track. It's like, oh, this is uh, the pianist is really great here. <laughs> yep. All right, All right. Art, we're going to be listening for you. We are. All right. Next up, um, this is coming on um, the heels of an album that got a lot of attention last year uh, by uh, Ron Miles, uh, the uh, trumpet player, and um, he had that album Did- last year with uh, Bill Frisell. And uh, which one was this? The Valentine, uh, that one? Is that it? No, no, no. Is he uh, on that? No, I don't. Or the uh, Americana one? No, it's not the Americana one. It's the oh, other one. Oh. Uh, I can't. The title slips my mind now. I know you really liked it though, because I think you told me about it to begin with. Oh, but yeah. um, Miles was. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what it is. This is really horrible. <laughs> Miles has been, uh, you know, a big figure on the Denver jazz scene uh, for a long oh. time. Oh, the Ron Miles album, Rainbow yeah, Sign. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. It wasn't a Bill Forsell album. That's why I was confused. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Rainbow Sign. Rainbow Sign. Uh, and yeah. so, um, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, if he had, if he would just leave Denver, he would be a much uh, bigger name or, 
you know, if he had come to New York or something like that. But what intrigued me about this album is that uh, it's uh, by a group called the Jazz Worms, yeah. um, which is a, a Denver-based group, and that's the whole appeal of it. And, uh, well, for Jazz Worms, the uh, album is appropriately entitled Squirmin. Yeah. And it's on the Capri label. Uh, so the Jazz Worms uh, were formed as a group way back in 1984, and if you're wondering why they came up with this name, it's kind of an acronym uh, based on the first initial of all the players' last names. At the so, worms part. <laughs> the worms yeah. part, yeah. yeah. And so um, they, they made an initial recording uh, debut in 1987 called uh, Crawling Out, <laughs> another wormy yeah. title. And, they got another um, wormy title. You know, they've gone on to do their uh, own different things, but this is uh, kind of more than 30 years later. Um, they get back together and uh, do another session together. And so uh, the original and uh, also present here, Worms are uh, pianist Andy Wheel, saxophonist uh, Keith Oxman, uh, drummer is Paul Romain, and uh, on cornet, Ron Miles, and bass, uh, Mark Simon. And uh, so they've got a set of all new material, and it's sort of... Uh, continues the story of where they uh, were before. And uh, I kind of like that um, because, you know, Denver is not a place that probably most international people think of as having a unique jazz scene. But uh, this is an interesting recording, and it goes to show you that, um, you know, there's uh, really interesting jazz happening on any kind of local scene around the world out there. Um, so uh, this one starts out with uh, a tune called Launching Pad. It's a good place to start. And hmm. uh, this is by Simon, uh, the bassist uh, here. Uh, starts with a nice bass and drum groove, uh, intermittent horn lines. They sort of start and stop. And then uh, it slows down with the bass a few times and back to the groove. And uh, it's really interesting things they do with structure through this whole album but you get it right here the trumpet and sax kind of have a like a modal interplay uh that eventually turns into a sax solo but it doesn't really go to one complete solo uh by one player at the beginning which is kind of unique uh, let me get this some is very yeah this is very much an ensemble recording no one yes. really takes center stage that's really what yeah. i think what it's all about they do set some pretty awesome grooves throughout yeah. the entire record they do um then we get uh, some sparse piano and the horns come back to uh, finish. Uh, and we've got a tune uh, by Romain, uh, the drummer. And he's got two tunes here that are from the notes on the release. They're based on his uh, pet birds. Uh, that's why they have these kind of weird uh, titles. But number two is called uh, Booze I, Box. <laughs> I like a good weird title. Yeah. And so this starts over a, a drum beat uh, with uh, trading... <laughs> trumpet and sax improvised phrases that come into a unison then a real funky bass and piano uh, backing enters into a bluesy piano solo the sax and trumpet trade again and then uh, the beat intensifies and then yeah everything kind of disperses to the end again a kind of really balanced ensemble type of uh, approach right. to it. We, we could all use a booze box couldn't we booze yeah that spelling yeah. would be different but yeah booze I, I think some of the words you're using, like intermittent, sparse, they, they're really good words to uh, 
to really kind of summarize this entire album and not in any kind of bad way but it's just sort of everybody kind of gets like a a turn and they're rather modest at the turns that they take exactly the entire ensemble sound is really what's important here these are mature guys playing Mm -hmm. and they're not trying to outdo each other or show anyone up and Mm -hmm. uh, they're very relaxed with each other because they've known each other for a long time and so that the, all the compositions have a lot of space in them. Mm, There's no real yeah. rushing through, even on fast tempos. And uh, yeah, so you can really examine the structures of what's going on because there's little interludes and um, exchanges that happen a lot in here. Uh, the third tune is called Joaquin. This is also by uh, Oxman. Uh, starts with some spacious piano chords and uh, drumming, and that opens up into like an upbeat swinging melody that's uh, played in unison with the cornet and sax, and, and sometimes becomes harmonized, uh, but sometimes unison. And uh, Miles uses a cup mute in the trumpet here, I believe, so you get a nice little tonal variation. Then uh, you get... <laughs> You get um, a Rob Miles solo, uh, and you know he's not a guy who's ever going to overplay. So mm. I wrote that this is kind of, it's a relaxed stroll of a solo. It just sounds like he's meandering down the street on a nice day. Um, Oxman comes in on sax, but he's a little bit quicker in step in his solo, but it still stays pretty relaxed. Uh, then we've got a, a bass solo over piano. Uh, and the drums just sneak in lightly and then everyone's back to the happy melody and out with some spacey chords and drumming. So this one's really kind of a, a really happy sounding uh, nice piece here. Uh, the next one is called Lickety Split and this is by a Wheel again. Uh, this one starts with some really intense syncopated chords on a piano and those kind of propel another kind of uh, horn phrases that are intermittent in the in the melody uh, into a bass solo uh, with drums but no uh, piano backing and then uh, chords into like a real chimey piano solo with a lot of rhythmic focus and uh, then there's a sax solo that's uh, kind of legato but has some real strong honks for uh, punctuation Uh, and then it returns uh, to the theme so this is a fun one too and after that, uh, another one of Romain's um, uh, bird-based tunes called Weedy Ball. I guess his other mm-hmm. bird's name is Weedy. And uh, you get a start and stop rhythm uh, with horn lines. It's really fun uh, right at the top of the tune. A really hard swing uh, beat is established, and that goes into the sax solo. A nice bass solo, a very chordy uh based piano solo and uh, uh, the drum solo here I like because uh, the drum solo is broken up with horn uh, hits but they're sort of longer tones and so it's kind of nice to have a piano solo where the horns come in or a drum solo where the horns uh, come in and then uh, you get a really puckish Ron Miles offbeat uh, kind of uh, solo uh, here which is uh, you know is kind of like he's uh, blowing kisses out uh, with that one it's kind of fun uh, then we've got a tune called What If All uh, it's got also some broken up uh, piano phrases that go into these start and stop uh, horn lines I don't know it sounds like this one's in 12-8 time or something uh, that 
piano solo here is interesting. It really keeps you guessing as to what's going on. Uh, but Ron Miles comes in uh, and kind of relaxes everything with a real chilled out solo uh, and bass solo. It takes a turn into some interesting intervals and then back to the head. And then we've got uh, Balladesque, which is, as it says, very ballad-like uh, by wheel. A nice slow ballad uh, with offset, sort of offset accented horn lines. Uh, the sax and trumpet are sort of complementing each other. Very lyrical solos from Ron Miles' trumpet and Oxman on sax. And a real delicate touch piano solo that uh, rises, has these rising chords that build to a nice... Uh, climax and the album ends with uh, a tune called uh, the Cimento Files uh, I guess it's written for a friend also by Oxman and this is uh, kind of a swinging blues with a few uh, unexpected chord twists uh, in it uh, there's a fun sax solo it's got some real fast fingered lines uh, when the trumpet comes in you think you're going to get a trumpet solo but no it's actually a trade off with the drums they trade phrases uh, a playful piano solo. Uh, he's got lots of rolling kind of phrases in it and then choppy chords. And then the, piano, the drums in the bass trade fours before it goes back to the head and closes out the program. Uh, so it's a really enjoyable recording, you know, by some uh, veteran players from the Denver scene. And you can tell they're old friends. There's a lot of variety in the material, a lot of uh, space. Nobody overplays here. Uh, it's just good music uh, played well. And uh, you can tell these are old friends uh, having fun. Uh, so, uh, yeah, recommended for a nice uh, variety jazz release. Yeah, it's a light and fun album. Um, it's, it's not, not, not very challenging on the brain, and that's just perfect. I'm, uh, I would recommend this highly. I'm, in fact, I'm going to put this in my uh, CD collection as I was delighted to find that it is available on CD. Oh, I want to wow. say something about... Yeah, it was, it was good to hear. Now, I want to say something about the album cover, which is pretty interesting. Um, they... Okay, they released um, the album Crawling Out back in the early 1980s, and uh, it was released on a vinyl LP, and then I guess it just went out of print when they they went their separate ways and never made another album until Squirmin', this one. This is 30 years later. This is only their yeah. second album as an ensemble, and the album cover for Squirmin' is the same as the Crowing Out album, it's got the. It's I think the background is different, but it's the same design, and all the guys are in the same position, except that now they're thirty years older. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of uh, like the uh, the red and the blue albums by the Beatles, where you see them in that apartment sort of complex, like leaning over right, the banister, right. and they're just older in the, uh, you yeah. know, in the the later one. So I thought that was a, a nice uh, touch. I want to make a request if you guys have. Um, uh, released the CD. Um, why not go back, remaster the Crawling Out album, put it out on uh, vinyl LP again, and release a, a CD version of it for the first time? I would buy that. Um, yeah, I'd like to hear I'm it. I'm sure other people would as well. Let's uh, let's have it. Yeah, especially since yeah. Uh, Miles has gotten well known now. Um, right. You know, uh, I'm sure some people would want to uh, purchase that. Go back and hear I do. It. Yeah, yeah. Put that make put that in my collection, and then uh, twenty years from now, when it's out of print again, I'll pull it off the shelf and enjoy it again. Yeah. So fun All one. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've tried to uh, pick music that uh, you know a, a variety of things internationally. Of course, I'm looking at the new jazz releases. Um, 
almost every day to find interesting things. There's so much more coming out of Europe uh, now than there is uh, coming out of the U.S. on a daily basis of new releases. So two or three times as many things to look through. I wonder um, if that's because of the uh, the the lockdown, and the closure of the jazz clubs, that people aren't performing. I don't really know. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Um, but when I, uh, you know, of course, the the largest majority of U.S. recordings I see are out of the main, you know, jazz scenes, you know, New York, mm. uh, especially. Uh, so when I saw something, you know, out of a different location, um, yeah, that also was intriguing to me too. So. Um, yeah, Denver. In Denver, huh? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right, so that's our local jazz scene release. And so what's left to cover in an episode but Latin jazz and violin? Which is my favorite kind of jazz. Well, the Latin jazz part, the violin part I love too. And yeah. here they are both together. So uh, I saw this and I thought, well, you don't get to hear jazz violin all that much. And uh, we've done some, uh, Mike and I both like uh Latin jazz a lot, and uh, here we've got uh, Venezuelan music. And I thought yeah, we haven't you don't get to hear too much yet. of this either. Yeah, <laughs> so Latin, uh, Venezuelan Latin jazz. I thought we'd go for it here, and we've got the new album by uh, Ali Bello and the Sweet Wire Band uh, called Inheritance, and this is on uh, Tiger Turn Records. And so, not available uh, on CD, unfortunately. At yeah. least I didn't see it. And there's not a lot of information available about the recording. Some of it's sketchy, so I had to combine with what I was hearing and what I could uh, kind of uh, figure out. Uh, there's some inf- bio information on him. So he is a Venezuelan-born, New York-based uh, violinist and composer. And uh, this album is uh, all original set of nine compositions. And uh, he's here with his uh, Sweet Wire band, which uh, includes uh, pianist Gabriel Chakarji, bassist Gabriel Vivas, uh, drummer Ismail Baez, and uh, percussionist uh, Manuel Marquez, who plays uh, a number of traditional Venezuelan drums, uh, such as the fulia, the paella, the kumako, and others. Um, And uh, well, and uh, I don't know what is, any of those are, by the way. Yeah, uh, he's also, um, you know, found with other mainstream uh, artists. He's recorded, uh, you know, uh, tracks with uh, Beyonce, The Roots, and uh, Jay Z, which may be why I don't know him because I don't think I've ever played a Jay Z uh, recording <laughs> myself. Probably won't. Um, but uh, so you know, he's sort of. Uh, multi-genre and uh, well-known. And on this album, he's got some special guests too. Uh, uh, Surprisingly, but notably the jazz violinist, Regina Carter, um, saxophonist uh, Jaleel Shaw, another saxophonist, uh, Jeff Lederer, and uh, playing a uh, Venezuelan four-stringed kind of guitar instrument, uh, Jorge Glem, the Cuatro. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I didn't know uh, quite what to expect here. Um, but Me the neither. <laughs> starts out with, the album starts out with a tune called Kaleidoscopic Sunset. And uh, as you're going to hear on all of this uh, album, if you listen to it, uh, it's based around many types of Afro-Venezuelan rhythms. 
so there's all kinds of rhythms uh, in here. They all have names. Some of them are I saw in the descriptions, but I'm not really familiar with all of these um, different, you know, Venezuelan rhythm types and the different instruments. Yeah. But but they're, they're all very different too than the uh, Cuban grooves that we're yes. familiar with from this genre. You know, it's a real, yep. you know, ha happy surprise really for me. They're really distinctive, yeah. Uh, and and mm. there's a lot of rhythmic variety in all these tracks. Uh, so this. Uh, this uh, tune starts out um, with a synthy electric piano sound, which I'll talk more about later. Um, and then for leads uh, with the melody, the sort of unexpected combination of violin and soprano sax. Uh, this is a very unusual combination of timbres that normally yeah. you would not put together because, uh, you know, they're sort of right in that same uh, kind of range. But... It does produce an interesting effect. Uh, so we've got the, you know, this combination, and it's rather a lyrical melody. Uh, one thing that stands out on this album is a pulsating electric bass. Uh, the bass is really center stage, even though you know, even in a background role, it's a really uh, thick uh, instrument that's integral to all of these different rhythms. And uh, fine uh, bass player here, uh, Gabriel Vivas. Uh, so. The melody is uh, lyrical over this pulsating uh, electric bass and very busy percussion. Um, and then uh, Bello's uh, violin solo, it starts softly, and uh, but he really builds tension. And what you can see is he, he's got a lot of passion in his playing. And one thing that he's really good at, um, kind of amazing in a way, is uh, he can change the tone the timbre of his instrument depending on what he wants to express he can get a really sort of beautiful mellow sound but he can also put an edge on his sound at will and so that aspect comes out through all of his solos um and then uh after the the uh, violin solo which sort of introduces you to his sound we've got a, a piano solo and then uh it goes into a little breakdown and then the violin and the soprano uh sax trade off uh until the end uh the second tune is called uh, heartbeat and uh, this one uh starts with uh, kind of a heartbeat pulse in the bass that you know is sort of uh emulating a heartbeat and then we get a swirling piano uh, again, more dual lines of soprano, sax, and violin. And, and this, the previous tune and this tune, although it's only uh, listed in this tune on the credits, is uh, Jalil Shaw. And um, a kind of subdued sax solo starts to build. And uh, Shaw has a really nice uh, soprano tone. It's not honky. It doesn't sound like a Yugo horn. Because <laughs> you know, soprano can be kind of ugly in the wrong hands. But uh, he has a a kind of a compelling tone uh and then uh after his solo the it mellows out again and the violin comes in over the heartbeat for another uh, interesting solo and he builds tension really well in his solos lots of fast lines and really edgy in some spots uh, so this is kind of an appealing number uh then we've got uh, number three uh, caracas uh, the, the keyboard uh, starts it out with an alternating chord riff intro uh, some nice chord changes under the violin melody. Uh, great bass lines in this tune. Uh, lots of rhythmic changes and interesting accents. Uh, got some uh, nice violin solos, electric piano. Uh, some nice uh, bass part that goes into a break and then the 
melody returns. Uh, the fourth tune is called Song to Marina, and this is where Regina Carter uh, guests. And uh, this is sort of a bolero-style uh, tune, uh, and they use a much more lush tone here. Uh, you get solos from each, but they, they blend together surprisingly well uh, when trading uh, lines with each other, but also backing each other. Uh, so they're actually kind of, um, they don't sound too distinctive uh, here. They sort of meld uh, in a tonal mind here. Uh, yeah, Regina so, Carter really is a ideal soloing partner for that sort of thing. Whenever she's got yeah. like a solo on a recording, she'll just, she she, she, she listens a lot and, so, and she'll kind of, you know, right. fit in with what's being, being played, uh, which, which is um, what everybody really should do. Yeah. But she's exceptionally good at it, really, you know. I've noticed that about her. They're not competing here at all. They're just mm. uh, yeah melding together, which is nice. Uh, the next tune is called uh, Bell's Blues. Um, and this uh, has some really complex rhythms in the intro. And uh, yeah, it if you're expecting a regular blues, you'll, you'll be left wondering. It's got some unusual harmonies to back up the melody, some interesting breaks. And it does end the phrase with kind of a bluesy end. And they say, oh, okay, so here's the blues. Um, this one, we've got uh, electric piano solo, where the tone is changed to kind of a heavier, distorted sound. I think it may be because he's in the lower register. Uh, a really harmonically complex uh, alto solo from uh, Jaleel Shaw here. He's uh, going way out there, uh, but he tempers that with just enough like bluesy phrases uh, in there. So it's a nice combination of blues and um exploration of the harmonies uh, going on here then and i was what you yeah, go ahead you go uh, to the next track or i want to no, say no, something no. about this one yeah then you, you get a uh, electric wah-wah violin that's solo. what i was gonna yeah. say <laughs> from bella which <laughs> i wasn't expecting he saved it neither was i middle. was gonna ask was that a wah-wah pedal yeah. and so uh yeah he pulls out the kind of uh you know, rock guitar experience on this one. You get some really cool bowing effects that sound like shredding on an electric guitar. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not gratuitous at all. He he uses it quite musically. And uh, I was kind of impressed with some good humor too. And uh, the tune gets uh, a big bluesy ending uh, at the end too. But then uh, this is curious about this track. It sort of stops and... Uh, after an uh, interval of silence, there's a percussion breakdown that seems kind of unrelated to the rest of the tune and goes on for a while to the end of the track. Um, so I don't know what that's supposed to be. Uh, it's kind of like a little hidden passage in uh, the tune. Um, but um, yeah, what did you think about the uh, wah-wah on the violin? I thought you know, it really kind of opened up my imagination for the uh possibilities of the wah-wah pedal on the violin i gotta I, I think i know what i want for my birthday this year i don't know if we're big enough to request this yet but uh i would like the violinist patricia kopachinskaya to play the uh, first uh, movement of the 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 first sonata from the box that petit sonatas and parties for solo violin through a wah-wah pedal i think i would that would make my day It'd be interesting. <laughs> now that was it. This was intrigued. That really caught my ear. I was like, I, I really yeah. kind of just it just suspended my thought and just I was just kind of like just imagining the possibilities of this. I thought it was a great track. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what he uses for regular equipment. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming he's probably using some sort of uh, you know close pickup system for all of his things. So uh, to get that you know really uh, strong kind of uh, close sound in all of his 
tune. So it's probably just mm. a matter of, you know, plugging into some pedal or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought it was nice. And uh, he saved it kind of till you get in the middle of the album and weren't expecting it. Um, and so it adds to the... And he also had the sense not to use it again. So it just yeah. kind of, it doesn't become like a gimmick, you know, it's sort yeah. of, uh, you know, it's just this little surprise for this one track. It was fantastic. Yeah. Then we've got uh, track six, uh, Jojo. Uh, this is uh, featuring uh, Jeff Letterer. And uh, this tune is uh, in five, uh, so five beats uh, per measure. And uh, it gives it a nice sense of motion. Uh, and here, although it's not credited uh, as a guest by Jorge Glem, uh, you can hear the quattro uh, strumming in the background, this uh, four-stringed uh, guitar-like instrument uh, here and uh, then uh, violin and clarinet uh, share the melody uh, together, which is a nice combination. Uh, letterer on clarinet, and then you get a fabulous clarinet solo from Jeff Letterer. For me, this was uh, the highlight solo of the whole album. Hmm. Uh, what an amazing tone and fluid lines. Uh, he sounds really fabulous on uh, clarinet. Uh, so I was really blown away by this track. Yeah. It's getting better as it goes. Yeah. I really like this as well. Yeah. Uh, then we've got uh, track seven uh, for All Saints, and uh, kind of a, a new rhythm is established. I don't know what it's called. Um, I'm sure they have it's a sort name of like for a it. New Orleans sort of march rhythm, I yeah. thought, or something. Um, Maybe of, that's where the saints come from. You know, could be. The saints yeah, they're like a Latin saints go marching in thing or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but we get trombone here, uh, which you would want on saints go marching in. But I don't know who's playing it because it's not credited. Uh, here in the listing but uh so we get trombone and sax with the violin and uh, we get solos all around and uh, after the solos we get some uh kind of spirited jamming together you know uh in that kind of uh, uh saints tradition and some solo breaks uh to the end so that's kind of a fun one uh then we get uh a really great track uh eight uh i guess this uh sepa and uh, this is featuring uh, Jorge Glem. And uh, so he starts out on his uh, quattro uh, strumming. Uh, and so you're like, oh, okay, it's a four-stringed instrument. You know, he's going to strum this. But then you get a, a really uh, interesting solo on uh, the quattro also. Uh, and he gets a really cool, tight sound uh, out of this uh, instrument. And uh, it's a really driving tempo set by the percussion here. A nice bass solo uh, and a couple breaks over some very kind of light uh, percussion, like uh, shaking or, or something. It's a very light effect. And then uh, the tomb really uh, builds and charges to the end. But uh, Glem is really a virtuoso of this instrument. He can really shred the chords and also play solo lines. So uh, yeah. I was like, wow, this is uh, kind of cool. It makes me want to buy one of these and see what I can do with it. You know? <laughs> All right. Okay. I, that would that would be was, an interesting uh, experiment. Yeah, four strings. Who, how can you go yeah. wrong? It's better than better than Frank uh, Wingold's seven string guitar. I wouldn't. I would never want to try to play that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know what to do with that extra <laughs> string. Four. I could kind of come up with something. Uh, and we close out the album with uh, Oisha, uh, and mm. this is uh, uh, back with Letterer, I believe, on tenor sax here. Uh, and so we get a nice melody on tenor sax and violin. Uh, over complex rhythms, and um, then we get sax and violin solos, a nice uh, bass solo here too, and then a funky breakdown with uh, piano and rhythm, 
uh, before we go back to the melody, but it really pushes to the end, uh, propelled by the percussion uh, to close out the album. So, mm. you know, this album, you get a lot of different traditional and modern rhythms and different styles from Venezuelan music. Um, and uh, so it's kind of a, a lesson in, you know, the intricacies of uh, one country's uh, traditions. And uh, Bello himself is a really exciting violinist. Uh, he combines uh, high-level improvisations um, with, uh, you know, full knowledge and interesting use of the cultural heritage uh, of rhythms uh, from his country. And uh, I like his choice of soloists that add you know, a lot of variety to the tunes, um, these different instruments, especially, as I mentioned, the uh, clarinet. Uh, there's one thing I didn't really care for uh, by the end of the album. I don't know if you guess what it is, Mike. Oh, I, I don't know. I really yeah. don't know. It's it's really no. this uh, electric piano sound. The one he they get on this on this particular this, record. This mm. record, yeah. Um, okay. It doesn't have that full road sound. It's more of like um, I, I, I'm not sure which uh, piano um, model it is or if it's emulating that, but it has a very synthy type of sound to it. Oh yeah, and it's on kind every of like the 80s, si- huh? yeah every yeah. single tune, and oh. I I would have just wish for a little bit more variety in the keyboard sound. Uh, I think what different tones would have worked better on some of these songs. Um, rather, There than was certainly that, a lot uh, of other like timbral uh, interest going yeah, on. Yeah. It would have been nice to yeah, have that, I guess, too, as yeah. well. That one I, just, I, I think I was so, focu- so focused in on that, that, uh, that wah-wah violin. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just blew all, blew all that keyboard stuff out of my head. I don't know. And then, then yeah. the clarinet solo like that you mentioned and all of that so yeah yeah oh well yeah but um, nevertheless this this is an album i would gladly uh add to my cd collection were it available on cd so i'm just going to throw that out there in case somebody's listening and wants to print up a cd of this uh of this yeah. album what is it you know, professionally tiger? made one of course not a you know not one not an mp3 one tiger turn i mean uh, i don't know i don't yeah. know about that label i don't know though. what they got <laughs> yeah but uh yeah it's very interesting uh i mean to get Venezuelan influenced jazz, but then also with violin, uh, it's kind of a unique combination. So uh, it was well worth checking out and uh, it's exciting. And uh, yeah, as a player, I'd like to hear him in different contexts too, because uh, he's really on fire and very passionate. So yeah, this yeah, so- kind of a spirit on violin is uh, interesting. So this week we had like uh, an hour and 40 minutes of solo violin followed by just this timbral spectacular. All kinds of odd instruments blending and combining together and sometimes not combining together and just making for some really interesting music. It's a real tonal smorgasbord this week yeah. of tunes. Oh, I think that might be the title right there. A tonal, tonal smorgasbord. Hey, wow. Well, maybe we'll come up with something else. We'll see. So we'll tonal see. something. A timbral. We'll timbral. A, t- a timbral buffet, as it timbral were. Timbral buffet. I like that. Mm. Timbral. <laughs> we'll see what sticks. <laughs> might be a good ba- that'd be a good band name. Timbral buffet. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd like to mention to uh, our listeners, too, uh, that uh, the Ibrahimova uh, violin uh, Paganini releases on Hyperion, which means Hyperion, it's, yeah. it's not on streaming. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to hear this one, you'll have to purchase it. Um it's not on Apple. You, uh, you music. can sample it though on Hyperion's site. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll put a link to the Hyperion with that uh, 
Just so you can or you can come over it. to my place and I'd be glad to play it for you. <laughs> if you can get a plane ticket you to Japan. Make it some intimacy with that too. Be careful. Well, you never know. It depends. Yeah, I yeah. guess. There's a lot of uh, I'm not interested in. And also, the uh, <laughs> uh, Ludovic Tizier uh, Verdi on Sony. On Sony, another uh, record label that doesn't yeah, put their Sony stuff is on. kind of stingy. How, and, but this one, uh, you can listen to on Apple Music, and you can listen to it on Spotify, but Deezer doesn't have rights to it. So mm -hmm. it won't be in the uh, Deezer playlist, unfortunately. So if you're listening Deezer, come on, negotiate and uh, get these uh, Sony recordings yeah. also on. Yeah, Deezer, come on. You've got yeah. a Japanese. Uh, outlet now you can just go right to the uh, source there that's right we'd be glad to help you out with that go uh, <laughs> twist some arms and uh, <laughs> do whatever we'll, we'll it takes go, we'll go in there like uh, Steve Jobs did like 30 years ago and say hey what's going on come on open yeah. it up open up that market all right so it's been episode 14 of adult music we'll be back next week with uh with i guess french spectacular a french buffet next week and you're all gonna uh, get frenched next week Ooh! <laughs> <laughs> i bet you can't well, wait it's a, it's a good thing I, ha I have some french blood already uh so i'll be warmed up for that um okay and i'll see what i can come up with with the jazz selections and uh, i'd like to remind you that uh, we can hear almost all of the tunes this week, but uh, most of the recordings from each week's episode all in one place on uh, Deezer. Uh, just look for the Adult Music Podcast playlist. Uh, there's one for each episode. And now that Deezer has been rolling out podcasts uh, in Japan, finally, and some other countries, you can find our podcast there, too. And wherever you listen to us, um, please uh, follow or subscribe. Uh, leave a comment or a ranking for us. It'll help us uh, get some more exposure and uh, grow our audience. So until next time, this has been Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, and we'll see you next week. Music